This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. But the core of this conflict is a government's failure with gross violation of human rights, but importantly, a situation where the interests and the aspirations of local communities are not being taken care of. That's Professor Adriano Nuvonga, director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Mozambique on the resurgence of extremists' violence. Details coming up. Also, two men were shot dead on the first day of a general strike against Guinea's ruling junta. And Botswana says it will use a UN meeting to lobby against a proposed ban of importing wildlife trophies from Africa. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. The Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, has eased most economic sanctions imposed on the ruling military juntas in Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso. The decision followed long hours of deliberations by the regional leaders at an extraordinary summit on the political and security situation in the region. President of the ECOWAS Commission, Dr. Omar Toure, said the move was based on humanitarian considerations due to Lent and the approaching month of Ramadan. David Monda, professor of political science at City University of New York, discussed this decision with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shinawi. While I am sympathetic for the economic and humanitarian concerns for the civilians facing a lot of these sanctions, I think the decision by ECOWAS really raises more problems than it solves because it would appear that the lifting of these sanctions is actually a reward for military regimes using extra constitutional means to take over power. I think, secondly, it also goes against the Africa AU Charter and a whole range of framework of how Africa should be governed and governed democratically around the Africa peace and security infrastructure, the African governance infrastructure, but more so around the Lome Declaration, which chastised and condemned these uh, military coups and extra constitutional means of taking over power. So it's really a mixed bag, but it's very disappointing to see that the regional economic community, ECOWAS, which has a lot of military and economic power on these landlocked countries did not do enough to restore democracy, to restore the authority of the people, but also to reward military regimes that are engaged in bad behavior in toppling democratic government. The sanctions were originally imposed as a punishment for military coups or power grabs, threatening constitutional democracy in these countries. What message would lifting the sanctions now send to the spat of coups in the African continent? I think lifting of sanctions now actually empowers anti-democratic forces. It empowers regimes or military officers in other countries that might be thinking about taking over government through extra-constitutional means. Let's not forget that part of the reason these sanctions 
have been removed is because of the division within ECOWAS. There was no unanimity in terms of the imposition or removal of these sanctions. I think secondly, the other problem was even within ECOWAS, there are members like Nigeria, which share very close historical and familial ties with other communities across the border, say in Niger. So Nigeria is a very big Muslim community. And I think Tinobu, as head of Nigeria, as head of the largest and most powerful member of ECOWAS, that could have intervened to actually change things with dealing with these military governments taking over power. I think he's also catering to a domestic constituency that's sympathetic to the Nigerians and also to some of the other military regimes in the Sahel that with which Nigeria shares both historical, ethnic, and religious consanguinity. Among the concerns that ECOWAS had was a security threat that the coup leaders added to Africa by relying on Russian mercenaries and pulling out of ECOWAS membership. Would the ECOWAS call for dialogue with coup leaders remove such concerns? No, I think not. I think dialogue also has to come with consequences. A credible threat to the military uh, leaders who took over power undemocratically, to them reneging on handing back power to civilian authority. But I might also add, we are in a bit of a dilemma here because I believe there might be a fear within ECOWAS that these countries in the Sahel had begun taking themselves out of the ECOWAS system. So they might also, have, part of the reason with the reneging on these sanctions might have been that other ECOWAS members who might feel the organizations interfering in their internal affairs might also pull away. I also think there's the other factor you mentioned in terms of non-state actors. And here we think of groups like the Wagner Group, proxies of nation states that act within the region. There might also have been this credible fear that if sanctions continue to be imposed, if these Sahelian countries can continue to suffer economic decline because of the sanctions, that external threats, say, from the Tuareg rebels from the Sahara would actually make the security situation in these countries worse and would then lead them to uh, rely more on groups like the Wagner Group, these non-state actors. So it, it's a very complicated set of uh, circumstances, but I, I really believe that uh, if Africa's to go forward, you know, we really need to strengthening the diplomatic infrastructure of the continent and Africa really sticking by its norms around governance and around constitutional governance because uh, we cannot continue to have these extra constitutional means of leaders taking over power and not wanting to hand power back to the people through their representatives. That was David Monda, professor of political science at City University of New York, speaking with VOA's Mohammed El Shinawi. Conflict monitors have reported fresh waves of violence in northern Mozambique just as peacekeepers prepare to withdraw from the region. Insurgents with links to the Islamic State or ISIS have been attacking villages and towns in the region since 2017. The United Nations says recent attacks have displaced more than 13,000 people. Darren Taylor reports. Troops from several southern African nations plus Rwanda have been battling militants from the Ansar al-Sunnah or Keepers of the Tradition group since July 2021. Ansar wants northern Mozambique to be an Islamic state with strict laws including execution of criminals and bans on education for women and girls. 
the insurgents claim to be fighting to free Muslims from President Philippe Nyusi's government in Maputo, which they say doesn't care about the poverty they live in. But human rights organizations say Ansar fighters have committed many atrocities, including torturing and beheading locals. Southern African and Rwandan troops have killed and captured many extremists, and for a while, Ansar's attacks decreased. This prompted the Southern African Development Community to announce its forces would withdraw by the end of the year. Some security analysts say this seems to be encouraging Ansar to mount fresh attacks. Professor Antoni van Nieuwkerk, conflict analyst at the University of South Africa, says it's also recruiting new fighters from villages and towns. Attracting disillusioned youth into your ideology and your mode of operation is increasingly sophisticated because those who do this make use of the social media and in particular Facebook, TikTok, WhatsApp, and then of course websites. Extremists make videos of how they attack compounds and how they take out soldiers. It's sophisticated production. It comes with sound and, and all the drama and the flag and the music. This, he says, continues to appeal to the youth of northern Mozambique, many of whom feel hopeless. Van Nieuwkerk thinks Ansar's new attacks are also motivated by its attempts to keep hold of illicit activities, such as weapons and narcotics smuggling, that it uses to sustain itself. There are UN agencies which produce very detailed maps of the flow of illegal goods and services that comes through parts of Mozambique. South Africa traps a lot of this, and it gets repackaged and re-exported to Europe and elsewhere. If we don't collaborate and coordinate across borders to take charge of this, we won't win. He says some residents of northern Mozambique, partly driven by poverty, are cooperating with extremists and organized crime groups to make sure smuggling networks run smoothly. Professor Adriano Novunga, director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Mozambique, says the violence won't end as long as the people of the north remain poor. Government has not officially acknowledged the governance failure in Cabo Delgado and in northern Mozambique as one of the key drivers of the conflict. Government is still very much in the perspective of internationally driven conflict. There are, of course, international elements, but core of this conflict is a governance failure with gross violation of human rights, but importantly, a situation where the interests and the aspirations of local communities are not being taken care of from the uh, governance. Newsy's administration says it's cooperating with the World Bank and the UN to develop northern Mozambique. It says it's rebuilding infrastructure such as hospitals and schools destroyed during the conflict and has launched job programs. Newsy maintains efforts such as these are bearing fruit and that Ansar's insurgency has ended. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Two young men were shot dead in the suburbs of Guinea's capital, Conakry, yesterday, the first day of an open-ended general strike against the ruling junta. 
Adama Keita told the French news agency AFP that security services killed his son, who was shot in the neck. A doctor at a regional hospital said that another young man died in a similar circumstance. The call to protest against the military leaders who seized power in a 2021 coup was widely followed in the West African nation with schools, shops, markets and roads deserted in Conakry. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Head officials in Uganda say they are concerned about a decline in condom use and and worry it will hamper the fight against HIV-AIDS. Reporter Mugume Davis Erwakarinji has more from Kampala, Uganda. Kampala resident Nathan Serunjoji says he has contracted sexually transmitted diseases because he did not use condoms. Sometimes I went in into with ladies who are affected and they also affected me. I got diseases like gonorrhea. I got a lot of pain. I couldn't go for work some days. I could remain in my bed, feeling a lot of pain. So things were not good for me. The community social worker advised Selunjoji to test for STDs and to use condoms. He says, he has not gotten an STD since. Social worker Wingabire Rose says Serunjoji's case is all too common. She says one reason some people do not regularly use condoms is the availability of antiretroviral drugs or ARVs used to treat HIV infections. They do not want to use condom because they feel that the condom does not give them the real sexual pleasure. When we go to some communities or places, people think like, you know, actually the availability of drugs, like make them feel that they are safe. They're like, even if I get HIV, I'll go and get treatment. Antiretroviral drugs do not cure HIV, but when properly used, the drugs help lower infected persons by load, fight infections, and thus improve quality of life. Over the years, use of condoms during risky sexual encounters has remained low in Uganda. Risky sexual encounters are behaviors with higher chances of contracting an STD, such as working in the sex industry and having multiple partners. For example, in 2017, a Ministry of Health survey showed only 58% of married men between the age of 15 and 49 years used condoms during a risky sexual encounter and only up to 37% of women in the same age category do. Dr. Dan Biamukama heads the HIV Prevention Department at Uganda AIDS Commission. Those who used condom, the number reduced from, for example, 57% in 2016 to 37% in 2020 among men. The number has dropped from 37% in 2016 to 26% among women, so which is a significant drop in behavior, yet we see the number of those engaging in high-risk sexual behavior that may result in HIV transmission is increasing. 
according to the World Health Organization, consistent and correct use of condoms are highly effective in preventing the transmission of HIV and other STDs. Condoms play a significant role in reducing AIDS around the world. The WHO says at least 117 million infections have been prevented by the use of condoms since 1990. The says condoms also play an important role in preventing unwanted pregnancies, especially among young people. We believe a condom remains a key pillar to fighting the HIV epidemic. We would want to see uh, the condom supported mainly by key leaders of communities, including religious uh, communities, religious leaders and political leaders, so that those who would want to benefit from the condom for family planning and for HIV prevention can freely access it without stigma, which is currently a key barrier to accessing this tool. The WHO says at least 374 million people contracted an STD in 2020. For VOA News, I am Gume, Davis Rakarindini Kampala, Uganda. Botswana says it will use this week's United Nations Environment Assembly to lobby against the proposed European ban on importing wildlife trophies from Africa. This comes as Botswana's former president, Ian Kama, visits the United Kingdom to lobby in favor of the ban, defying his country's position. Mokondisi Dube reports from Botswana's capital, Habrone. Botswana's acting Minister of Environment and Tourism, Machana Shamukuni, told Parliament that will be present when the UN Environment Assembly convenes Monday. He says, next week I'll be at the UN meeting in Nairobi. I'll take time to remind other like-minded delegates to continue to lobby against Europe's efforts to ban trophy hunting. Trophy hunting is the practice of killing large animals like elephants, lions and tigers for sport. Hunters often keep the heads or other parts of the animals for display. In 2022, the European Parliament announced plans to introduce a ban on the import of wildlife trophies. Conservationists are concerned that continued hunting will further deplete wildlife populations, which are declining in many areas from loss of habitat and poaching. However, Botswana is the world's largest elephant population at more than 130,000, and the giant animals are often in conflict with humans. Sioka Simasiku is director of a conservation coalition, the Gamelian Council of Non-Governmental Organizations, and has been involved in the campaign against the proposed wildlife trophy import bans. He says there is a need for authorities in Europe to travel to Southern Africa to get first-hand information on how limited elephant hunting helps Botswana. This has been actually the call of the community to invite the European countries, including the UK, to come directly to um, their areas to witness uh, what uh, the benefits from uh, uh, this wildlife has actually uh, provided them, and also to see the damages that are also brought about uh, by uh, wildlife within their area in terms of crop damage, competition for water holes, and loss of life. These are things that are dear to our communities. Currently, Botswana issues about 300 elephant hunting licenses per year, generating approximately $3 million for the country, separate from other revenues the hunters generate. Meanwhile, Bozona's former president, Ian Kama, this week arrived in the United Kingdom to drum up support for the hunting ban. While in power, Kama enacted a hunting ban in 2024, 
but his successor, President Mkhoetse Masisi, lifted the moratorium in 2019. Simasiku says wildlife communities in Botswana oppose Kama's recent actions. Uh, the Botswana community strongly oppose um, uh, this kind of move where the former president advocated uh, for a trophy hunting ban in London. Uh, they expressed concerns about the negative impact um, on their livelihoods and conservation efforts. They argue that a blanket ban overlooks their role in sustainable wildlife management and uh, um, age for a more inclusive approach that considers their perspective and needs. No EU-wide ban on wildlife trophy imports is materialized so far, but the UK House of Lords considered a ban that failed to pass, while Germany and France are considering similar prohibitions. Last month, Belgium succeeded in introducing a ban amid calls for the rest of Europe to follow suit. Gondi Sidube, VOA News, Havoroni, Botswana. It's Black History Month in the United States. In Los Angeles, there is an exhibit of black artists sharing their experience growing up in America. Jenya Dulot takes us there. New York artist Guy Stanley Filosh says his series Give Us Our Flowers celebrates African-American culture. As a kid, I used to go to museums all the time and I used to always see um, portraits of white people. Yeah, and there was never portraits of black and brown people, portraits that look like me. So I decided to honor us. Filosh is one of the artists representing black creators at the L.A. Art Show. In Playtime, Gregory St. Amon explores self-perceptions of children of color growing up in America. The idea also of the colors balancing against the, the black and white um, portraiture. My thing is like you walk into a room, nobody knows who you are, they perceive you a certain way, but once you open your mouth, that, you know, shows your personality and that becomes your armor against society. You know, you're not just one of them, but you're this person. So all my work kind of plays with that. Jamaican-born O'Neill Scott reflects on childhood memories of immigrating to the United States and finding his way in a new country. Just as um, an African-American, I think it's important to be able to uh, really cautiously understand how you're going to go about uh, navigating the world. It's just one of those things that um, that I think we constantly think about. It's constantly on, in the back of our minds, um, how we're perceived, stuff like that. Artist Ron Green says black Americans experience both invisibility and hypervisibility. Me, my personal experience is more of a hypervisible because the world's been taught that I'm dangerous because I'm a black man. As far as being invisible, I really don't get that too much. Like, But it could be something as simple as being in a... Starbucks and trying to get somebody to wait on you, or, you know, they act like they don't see you. Brooklyn-based gallery owner Tanya Wiedemeyer, who organized these artists and helped showcase their work in Los Angeles, says black representation in arts uplifts the entire community. Whenever someone steps into the booth or steps into the gallery or steps into the museum and see themselves in that particular portrait, it makes people feel good. It makes people feel that they're being recognized. And so this is where the renaissance is happening because I can simply identify with that person that's in that image. 
and these New York-based artists are hoping to carry on the message to future generations as they visit a local after-school program to help students create their own portraits. Jenya Dulo, VOA News, Los Angeles. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehayas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Van Dee, and our engineer, Rob McLean, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.